Hi everybody, it's Colin Ellis here. It's Monday morning, so it must be time for another Culture and Coffee podcast. It is the 22nd of November, and how are you doing? Have you done your Christmas shopping yet? If you're doing it online, it's probably too late. Probably too late. when online shopping was a novelty? Oh my God, you order it here and then it arrives like a week later. Not anymore. Saw a guy delivered a box here the other day. We've got like um, a lockable front gate. Just threw the box over. Just threw. <laughs> like I was sat there. It didn't even press the belly. Just threw the box over. It was all dented and stuff. It's like, yeah. So we've gone from, isn't it a novelty? Isn't it amazing to just chucking stuff? It does. Of course, that's not everybody. Please don't be offended if, you do, if you're a delivery person. Um, yeah, but it there. Uh, 22nd November, yeah, that's where we are. Uh, now, I've got to get on with it, actually, today. and No no, no fluffing around today, because I'm doing a speech late in this morning, well, early this morning. So I've just got to do the podcast, get a chur, get on with my day. Um, yes, so we should do that. We should do that. But, uh, but, uh, but I hope you're okay, wherever you, wherever you are. It's going a bit nuts here. I'm doing it again. It's going a bit nuts in the world again with the virus and Europe and shutting down. Just It's weird, because here in Australia, we're... Kind of living the life again now because because uh, of our incredible vaccination rates. All right. So this week's coffee. Uh, let's talk to today. Uh, this week's coffee is a Gurma Beckley. Gurma Beckley from the Kuchera uh, Wareda in Guji, Ethiopia. So we are going back to the origins of coffee. We're going where, where it all started, Ethiopia. Just, just my favorite coffee. It must be the altitude or... I don't know. I don't know what it is. Uh, so, um, Guji is south of Ethiopia. It's it's a seven hour drive to Addis Ababa. It's not far from the border of Kenya, as you look at the map, anyway. And this particular coffee has notes of marshmallow. It's a new one. Wild cherry. <laughs> wild. It's a wild cherry. It's like a normal cherry, but we're in a I don't know leather jacket and riding a motorcycle amen can't do can't do the accent amen look at me i'm smoking on my bike wild cherry and lemon it's got it all going on this coffee um let me just taste it wild 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 cherry actually that's got a really nice aftertaste, actually. Uh, it is from the little marionette in New South Wales. Because, yes, folks, I left the States. More about that in a minute. Now, they've sent a little card. And, that, you know, I'm a sucker for a little coffee card. If you ever buy coffee, you should always read the little card. Because people put these things together with love and care and all of those great things. And so this is great because on the back it's got a... It's got like a little altitude. It tells you the altitude that it's grown at, which is great, which is 1,900 meters. It's like a little scale, almost like a little ladder down the side here. It tells you when it was uh, grown, which is 2021. So it's Ethiopia, Goma Bekele, Wereda, uh, Natural, uh, Walishu Kurumi Dega. Uh, Goma Bekele is a motivated smallholder coffee producer based in Biloya, village. He is one of the few in his area who pre-float the coffee cherries, ensuring that only the ripest and sweetest ones end up in your cup. The specific lot is a blend of the Walisho, Dega and Kurumi varieties, that's the bean itself, selected specifically by Germa for their productivity and superior cup quality. 
Due to the Ethiopian government change in laws, Goma is now able to directly participate in the international coffee market, experimenting with different coffee types. So there you go. Fabulous. Um, the little marionette itself, by the way, in New South Wales, was founded by Ed Cutliffe uh, with the intention of making coffee accessible to all. I love the fact that these people have a little dream. Every, like every story that I read, they have a little dream and they're like, that's what I'm going to do. And so it, it started as a little hole-in-the-wall cafe in Sydney's Inner West. And now they're a big roaster, which is fabulous. They, they, they manually roast all the beans in Roselle, which sounds like a... Sounds like a I don't know, safari animal, Roselle, in, in Sydney's Inner West, using a refurbished 1930s Probat roaster. Fabulous, fabulous, delicious, delicious coffee. Uh, so what did I do this weekend? Uh, I'll tell you what I did yesterday. I had a lion, and a lion for me is about, I don't know, 8.30. Like, it's never late. I remember my dad used to sleep to like, I don't know, quarter to 11 on a Sunday morning. I mean, you, you may do that. I'm not judging. I'm not judging. That just might be the, you know, that might be the same for you. But for me, like 8.30 is a massive lie-in. Sunday mornings, I usually have the football to watch. Uh, Everton played overnight, so I've got to do that today at some stage. I have to avoid the score and then um, watch the game at some stage today. But I've watched, uh, like, uh, the, so this week, as I'm recording it, this week, Get Back, which is a documentary about the last Beatles session by Peter Jackson, the, the uh, director of Lord of the Rings, who recently sold Weta Studios for a billion dollars, as you do. Uh, he's releasing the three-part series. I think it's on, it's on Disney+. Plus. It is Disney+. Plus. Now, if you haven't bought Disney+, Plus, you should go and get it just for The Mandalorian, which is amazing. Uh, you're welcome, Disney, by the way. I'm getting nothing for this. And not, I'm not plugging. You know, no one's approaching me for advertising. saying, Colin, can you plug? Get back. Uh, if you want me to speak at your leadership retreat, by the way, Disney, I'm happy to do that as well. I'm only doing California, though. I'm not doing any of this Australia rubbish. If you want me, let's, let's go over there. Now, uh, Let It Be as an album. Most of, well, most, most of Let It Be as the album was written in the basement. So much like me recording this podcast in the basement. So many similarities. I, I'm not saying I'm the next Beatles because there's only one of me and there was five of them. Sorry, there was four of them. Um, I don't even know how many Beatles there are. It's because I've got five things here. I've got five things that I want to tell you about the Beatles. So I'm obviously distracting myself as I'm talking. Uh, so, yeah, so um, Get Back is released this week. So I thought what I would do is, you know, kind of in honour of in honor of that, is I'll tell you five things that you might not know about the Beatles in Liverpool, right? You know, because growing up in Liverpool, it's about, it's about music, lad. It's about comedy. Like, everybody's a comedian. Like, all comedians hate playing Liverpool because people are, like, funnier than the comedians themselves. And it's about footy. It's about the footy. It's about Everton, Tramia. There's no other teams in Liverpool. Um, so, yeah, so here's five things you might not know about the Beatles in Liverpool. Like, it's it surrounds you. It's everywhere. It's, like, literally everywhere. And so the first thing is, if it wasn't for tuberculosis, the last great pandemic, not as a scale, um, if it wasn't for tuberculosis, Ringo Starr would never have been a Beatle. He contracted... TB when he was 12. Oh, his, his real name, by the way, is Richard Starkey, if you didn't know that. That could be a sixth thing, I suppose. Uh, he was, he, he, he caught TB when he was 12, and he was a bit of a sick, he's a bit of a sickly kid, so he was like in and out of hospital when he was young. 
Uh, uh, but in those days, they didn't know much about TB at all. And it's, it was an airborne disease. He passed it on, all of that stuff, right? And so they committed him to a sanatorium for two years. Imagine that as a 12-year-old kid being committed to a sanatorium. But there's loads of other kids in there with the same afflictions. Um, but to keep the kind of patients amused, they did like a musical, the nurses and the doctors, they did a musical program. And he picked up these uh, cotton bobbins, these two big cotton bobbins, like wooden sticks with, with which you'd wind cotton around. And he used them as drums. And that's how he kind of learned a love of the drum. Uh, his name Ringo, by the way. It, it's called Ringo. Starkey, you can understand, right? Star. It's just a, an abbreviation of Starkey. But the first professional band that he joined, like, properly, uh, was a group called um, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And the lead singer, Rory Storm, nicknamed him Ringo because he wore a lot of rings. So there you go. So that's the first thing. Second thing is in Stanley Street in Liverpool, which is, is like, right in the heart of the city. There's a sculpture of Eleanor Rigby. Like, there's a concrete bench, and it's almost like a life-size sculpture. Like, in, like on my lunch break, you used to see people, like, tourists just sat next to the sculpture of Eleanor Rigby having the picture taken, right? It's just a long line of people waiting to have the picture taken. But it was actually designed and made by a guy called Tommy Steele. And Tommy Steele was a huge star in his own right in the 50s, and effectively was Britain's first teen idol he played a gig in liverpool in 1981 and he you know he thought there isn't really other than in matthew street itself where the cavern club is that there isn't really kind of many tributes to the beatles so we offered to 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 design and build this statue himself uh which he did in 1982 he was paid threepence three pence threepence uh for the statue Ellen Rigby, by the way, actually a fictitious character, according to Paul McCartney. But there is actually a grave of someone called Ellen Rigby in, in Walton. Uh, in, the, in the church where Paul McCartney first met John Lennon when they were playing A Fate in 1957. It's a great story. So, so many great Beatles stories. All right, that's the second thing. Third thing, Beatlemania itself started in, in a place called Litherland. On the 27th of uh, December, 1960. Now, Litherland is about five miles north. Like, everyone thinks it's the Cavern Club, but it's not. It started in Litherland. Um, because when the Beatles came back from Hamburg, from, from, from Germany, um, they were just looking for places to play. And they got a, they got a book in, in Litherland Town Hall just after Christmas. Uh, and they were advertised as direct from Hamburg. So people thought they were German because they weren't that well known, right? People thought they were German, and um, obviously they weren't. They were paid six quid. They played there 20 times, but their first gig changed everything because it was like a massive dance hall that was all full, and like people were expecting to play dance music, and they didn't. They, they played rock and roll, and people started screaming, and then that first gig changed everything, according to Paul McCartney. The Cavern Club, that's the third thing. The fourth thing is the Cavern Club. Now, they first played the Cavern Club, in February the next year, in, in February 1961. Now, the Cavern Club would, opened in 57. Um, the, the owner at that time was a guy called uh, Alan Sittner, and he named the club after a Paris jazz club because he wanted, it, he wanted to open like the best jazz club uh, outside London. That was his goal because he loved jazz. 
uh, and he named it after the, the, the Paris jazz club, Le Caveau de la Huchette. Mm. So they called it the Cavern Club. Now, the Beatles, their first performance there in February was an experiment. Uh, because it was a jazz club, what uh, Sittner decided to do was to experiment at lunchtimes. And he was just like, oh, I'll put a few rock and roll gigs on at lunchtime for up and coming bands. And uh, we'll see where that takes us. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, the Beatles played at the Cavern Club 292 times. I went to the Cavern Club uh, as a nightclub goer probably about 350 times. <laughs> it's not that many. We used to go every Saturday. Saturday nights was Cavern Club nights. We used to get the train into Liverpool and kind of work our way down to the Cavern Club. We'd get there maybe 11 11, 11 o'clock, something like that. It's a great venue, great venue. Although in those days you could smoke in venues and if you had cabin clubs underground, right, you used to stink of smoke. You used to need to shower when you got in because you just smelled so much of smoke because it was nowhere. I remember one New Year's Eve we were in there and uh, there was a fire alarm. And like, if there had ever been a fire down there, like it would have been catastrophic because like everyone, there's like two exit, emergency exits. And you're crawling over yourself to get out. It's awful. Anyway, that's the fourth thing. Uh, the fifth thing, which is about the Cavern Club itself, is the original Cavern Club was actually demolished to build a car park. It's crazy. So the club that I went to and the club that now exists, if you go as a tourist, is on the other side of Matthew Street. And it's like a, an authentic reconstruction, which they did in the 80s. But it gives you a real sense, uh, the essence of the Beatles. Anyway, enough of that. Let's talk about vision. Let's talk about vision statements. I'm asking this week, is your vision uninspiring? It's uh, coffee beetles and culture today, I suppose. Oh, Beatles. Like the Beatles music is just great. It's just great. All right. Uh, yeah, vision statement. For me, vision statement is one of the most important parts of, of, of business. It's the thing that when you get it right, it really, or it should light a fire inside people. It should be like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm loving that. You know, you take something like uh, New Zealand rugby. New Zealand rugby for me have got one of the best vision statements. The, the vision statement is inspiring and unifying New Zealanders. Like, how good is that? It's got nothing to do with sport. It's got nothing to do with rugby. It's got everything to do with inspiring and unifying the country. Uh, and as someone who lived in New Zealand for six years, like, it's it really does. The country just comes to a standstill when the All Blacks play. The other great thing about it is they're so um, encouraging, like not like Brits in the like, football team. It's just like, oh, you know we're going to win. Remember, my dad said, you're not an England fan. Not an England fan, son, you're an Everton fan. Okay. Um, but it does, it inspires and unifies New Zealanders, you know, and, and, and everything that the organisation does is geared towards inspiring and unifying New Zealanders. And sure, it's about the best players and the best coaches and the best training. You know, it's, a, it, it's about all of that, but it's also about how did the team come together? Um, what work do they do in the community? How do they represent New Zealand when they're back at their clubs? All of these things. You know, and ever and you know when like the, the the All Blacks, as they know, they lost against Ireland last week. Like it's a national tragedy, but then they very quickly get over it and, and move on. But it is, you know, it's it, it it's that important. And but that's you know that's the importance of vision. It sits at the top, really, of of what the organisation's trying to do. So if you take business more generally, you've got your vision. This kind of 
aspirational statement of what you want the organization to become, right? That's at the very top of, you know, what it means to be a business. So, so what you want from your leadership team to say, this is where we're going. Like, this is what we're doing. This is where we're headed, you know, to be the, you know, biggest one of these or to inspire whatever, or, you know, you look at someone like uh, Tesla, accelerating the world's transition to sustainable energy. Yeah, it's a really powerful vision statement. It says nothing about cars, says nothing about batteries necessarily, it says nothing about, you know, kind of your wild cherry CEO. Accelerating this world's transition to sustainable energy. Like, that's where we're going. Like, do you want to come? Do you want to get on board? Because that's where we're going. That's what we're doing. And so that's, you know, the, the vision, you know, it's something you can generally talk about during an interview. To, to, to potential staff and they're like, oh, that sounds really cool. So you've got your vision, that's where you're going. Then underpinning that is the strategy to sort of say, listen, if, if, if that's our vision, in the next one to three years is what we're going to do. Now, sometimes, you know, you refresh your vision one to three years, depending on, on, on what the organization wants to achieve. And for me, the vision should be achievable. If it's unachievable, then it's a demotivator. If it's too long, it's too wordy, I'll get back to that in a minute. It's a demotivator because people are like, where are you talking about? What? Where are we going? They'll get that. So, you know, that's the vision. So strategy, one, typically one to three years. We used to write 10-year strategies. like, And they were out of date like the next week. And you'd put all of this effort into writing a 10-year strategy. It was nonsense. So your strategy underpins your vision. Sometimes people do it the other way around. You know, fair enough. If this is the strategy, then what's our vision? You know, I do some of those exercises. Usually it's the other way around. And then out of the strategy falls your goals. So if this is our strategy, here's all the stuff that we need to do by when in order for us to achieve the vision. Like it's really, it's like it's really simple. We don't teach people this, but it's really, really simple. And then the way you deliver your goals is through business as usual and your projects. Now business as usual, the stuff you need to keep doing day to day in order to be successful. Projects is a bunch of new stuff to, to either fix some of the other stuff and to grow the business. And then underpinning all of that is the culture. So the vision is a massive part of the culture because it really, really sets the direction. You know, I always talk about the fact that a vision is at the heart of great workplace culture. It's at the heart. It's crucially important. Um, so a vision is a short but clear picture of what the future looks like. And it, it, it kind of says, this is what we want to become. Short but clear. And there's a great book um, by a... Uh, uh, Benjamin Zander, Rosamund Stone Zander. Benjamin Zander is a conductor and he's got a fabulous TED Talk if you haven't seen it, but uh, just just Google Benjamin Zander TED Talk and he talks about how we use music. It's awesome. Uh, but they wrote a great book called The Art of Possibility. And in The Art of Possibility, they talk about vision and they say a vision helps to inspire and capture aspiration, right? Really important. Capture aspiration, short but clear picture. But this bit, the second bit of it is just as important and assist people in overcoming the inherent incohesion associated in moving away from the familiar. So what they're saying, and this is what a vision statement is good for, what they're saying is, this is what we want to become. It's short but clear. It's easy to understand. Members of staff have been involved in creating it. That's great. I'll come to that in a second. Oh, but by the way, we're not going back. We're going, we're always going there. 
So at that point, you put in a stake in the ground to say, this vision statement is the future. This is what we are going to pin. We're going to base every decision that we make around this vision statement. And that's a demonstration then to staff that you're taking, you're taking this seriously. Is we're moving forward, we're not moving backward. And I don't think enough organizations do that with their vision statement. I think like many things in culture, it's like tick the box, got a vision, tick, values, tick. You know, set of behaviors, tick. And it's not that the you know it's not that it you know doing these things is wrong. It's not wrong. You've got to do them, but you've got to do them and then use them in the way that they were intended. And so the vision statement really does you know provide that basis for strength, that basis for inspiration, that basis for future focus, the basis for transformation. You know, I met an organisation last week, really exciting times, doing a transformation uh, program. And I'd written, I'd written an article for someone, I think. And they said, um, oh, you said that transformation starts with a redefinition of culture. I was like, well, yeah, it does. And they were like, can you just expand on that? I was like, well, the thing, when you use the word transformation, what you're actually transforming is the culture. You might be implementing technology, but you're transforming the culture. And in order to transform the culture, you have to reset what it looks like so that people can kind of gradually work and almost kind of, um, work into it and you've got to do that at day one otherwise nothing ever transforms what you try and do is transform something after the event you implement a new I don't know ERP system and then you try and transform the culture afterwards it's too late it's too late because then you're asking people to immediately move you know cultures evolve they don't change you ask people to immediately move whereas when you when you redefine the culture and reset the vision at the start, we've given them something to help them overcome the inherent incohesion associated in moving away from the familiar, right? So we've given them that. So transformation always starts with a redefinition of culture. And then you have to have a program of events that helps people with their behavior every single month, right? Helps people with their skills every single month. And you're always focused on the vision. How does this line up to the vision? And during the pandemic, of course, people's, uh, you know, people's visions changed, but, and yet they, you know, people, some organizations just didn't change their vision. So people then came, employees became confused to go, yeah, we've got the, we've got this vision to be the biggest one of these in the world, but actually we've just lost 20% of our workforce as a result of the pandemic. And again, organizations aren't thinking enough about culture. They're not thinking enough about the importance of all of these components and asking themselves, well, what do we need to do to redefine the culture to inspire and unify people again? Uh, there was a survey done by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership uh, by King's College in, in, uh, and King's College in London earlier this year. And they found that only 30% of organizations that they surveyed said there's a consensus on their vision for the future. 30%, so you know, it's less than a third and then you think about all the employees working within those organizations, you know, and, and you know, what, this, what must they be feeling? Just in uncertainty all of the time. So there is a, a, you know, a real need to redefine it. And then, you know, when I talk about it being at the heart of every decision, so, you know, you should be asking yourselves with a vision, it, does it act as a motivator for staff and the subcultures they work within? Because... Each subculture should have its own vision aligned. So if you're working finance, you should have your vision aligned to the organization's vision. You know, how are you inspiring and motivating your own staff? How are you, how are you 
kind of making the organization's vision relevant for you. It's how subcultures work. Great organization cultures made up of great subcultures. So does it act as a motivator? Does the activity that you're undertaking, either business as usual or project, does it align with the vision? Does it get that get you that little bit closer to where you're going? Does hiring this particular individual improve our chances of achieving the division? Or are you just hiring them because you need someone with a pulse? You know, you're not really thinking about what they're going to add further down the track. And then you're going to blame them for not putting the effort in when really it's your fault because you rushed it. Uh, will this, you know, will, will project provide outcomes, improve chances? You know, all of these questions. And then ultimately, is the vision still, still achievable? But it's got to be short but clear. Short, six words. I can't, no buzzwords, no kind of long phrases, you know, like Lego, inventing the future of play. Five words, brilliant. Like inventing, not conforming to the future of play, inventing the future of play. Love that one from, from Lego. And the staff have got to be involved with all cultural activity. I can't stress this enough. I've talked about it on other episodes. The staff have to be involved. Because if the staff aren't involved, it becomes somebody else's vision. If it's just the leadership team doing it in the, the boardroom one day, let's come up with a vision here and now. Like, people are just going to say, yeah, that's not our vision. That belongs to the leadership team, not us. So if you're doing any kind of cultural activity, it's important to get the staff involved, have a facilitated session such that they, 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 they own it and go, cool, that's our vision now. What behaviors, what principles of collaboration do we need in order to deliver that vision? And that's, you know, that's when you get that true ownership and that's when it, it becomes inspiring for people. It, you know, it becomes this motivator every day. And then, you know, and, and you, you talk to employees like, all right, who do you, who do you work for? It's like, oh, I work for uh, Virgin Media. Oh, what do Virgin Media do? We build connections that really matter. Boom. This is your vision statement. Pfft, Virgin are great at doing vision statements. Pfft. Who do you work for? Virgin Active. Virgin Active, what do you do? We make exercise irresistible. Really? If you work, if you go into a Virgin Active gym as well, you see making exercise irresistible all like everywhere. Like you walk in, you're like, oh, this is cool. It makes you want to exercise. Does it make you want to exercise? I don't know if it can make you exercise, but you get that feeling, right? You get that feeling. And so that's the importance of vision. So vision sits at the heart of every single decision that you make and is the guiding light for your strategic intent. So if you haven't rewritten it for your next three years, now's the time to sit down and go, right, how do we make this inspiring for staff? All right, that's your culture and coffee podcast for, that's your culture, coffee and Beatles podcast for the day. If you've got any requests, you can email me at colin at colindellis.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Otherwise, have a great day. Try for now.